Hello, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Wednesday, May 20th, 2020, and I'm Sarah O, oh, Senior Fellow at TPI, and I'm joined by Scott Walston, TPI's President. Today, we're delighted to talk to Amy Dappen Kim. Amy is the Chief Policy Officer for the Chamber of Digital Commerce. Prior to joining the Chamber, she advised financial institutions, blockchain-based companies, marketplace lenders, investors, and innovators regarding compliance obligations under financial services laws. In particular, she has advised on the Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering requirements and the regulations and sanctions programs administered by the Office of Foreign Assets Control. During her career, Amy has also advised companies on cross-border anti-bribery and trade-related compliance matters. She has advised investors in hedge funds, private equity funds, and real estate funds. She's also assisted companies in advocating before the U.S. Congress and other U.S. government agencies. Amy holds a bachelor's degree from Pepperdine University and her law degree from University of Notre Dame Law School. Thanks, Amy, for coming on the program. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. I'm a big admirer of the work that you guys do. Blockchain development has been continuing around the world. The digital dollar made it a brief appearance in an early draft of the CARES Act before being deleted, and digital payments are becoming ever more important this year as well. I was curious to hear your views on policy priorities in 2020. What should Congress and policymakers watch in blockchain and crypto this year? Yeah, Sarah, I mean, it's interesting, too, that you mentioned the CARES Act and the stimulus packages, and you know, I think we have to be mindful and, I mean, aware of the crisis that we're in and really the acute dependence and necessity of using digital products and services. I mean, we're all doing it more so than we ever had been before. And I think that's, you know, while there's great challenges that we're facing and we will continue to face for some time, I think the opportunity in our industry is, you know, that technology can be a real resource to people and to governments and to businesses as we think about how to grow out of this current situation. And so we've seen such a shift towards use and dependence on some of these digital technologies. And blockchain, I think, is one such technology that can be a significant resource to government and to businesses and to consumers as we look at ways to grow and learn from the circumstances that we're in and become better for it once we get to the other side. You see some glimmer of that understanding in a letter that several members of the Congressional Blockchain Caucus sent to Secretary Mnuchin, urging them to look at blockchain technology in the context of aid distribution and just thinking in those circumstances. And I think that's exactly the right message that we should be. Blockchain is an important technology. There's many technologies, but blockchain is an important one. And I think it's a little bit disproportionately considered in the context of the technologies that are out there in the U.S. And then, of course, it's the U.S. compared to globally. So do you, with the pandemic and blockchain, was the Congressional Caucus, were they able to bring this up just because Congress is paying more attention to digital technologies in general and it provided an opening? Or are there actual uses of blockchain that they're either advocating for or would like to see or see the potential for in this specific circumstance? You know, I think, you know, some of these things are public. Some of these things are underpinnings that have been kind of going on in conversations that have been being had in the last several months. I think the obvious one is what you've raised, which is the letter referenced using blockchain technology as a tool for distribution of aid. Whether we could get a system fast enough to do that, you know, I'm not so sure, but we should, I mean, it should absolutely be considered as we're thinking of all the multitude of ways that the government is going to be helping 
states, cities, citizens, you know, come out of this pandemic and these circumstances. There are other ways, though, and, you know, you saw some glimmers of that right before the crisis hit and the pandemic hit the U.S. There were two hearings that were scheduled in Congress, one on the Senate side and a subcommittee of the Banking Committee, and the other on the House side, Subcommittee of Financial Services. And they were both, well, the Senate Banking hearing was looking at U.S. competitiveness with respect to China. And so that's broader than blockchain. But, you know, I believe that the advances that China has made with respect to a digital yuan was going to be versus a digital dollar was going to be one of the components of that hearing. On the House side, the title of the hearing was the global response to digital currency. So both touching upon what is the U.S. response or what is the U.S. plan for looking at a dollar in a digital environment and then comparatively from a competitive basis where you have countries like China and others who are incentivized to try to use technology to their advantage and gain preeminence for their own currency. So tell us a little bit more about the digital yuan and sort of and what they hope to do with it and where that puts the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, on the one hand, it's hard to know exactly what they're doing. I think there's a lot kind of a duck on the water, feet moving out fast, even though it seems calm on the surface. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were fortunate enough to be able to conduct a study where we were able to pull dozens of patents that were filed in China. So with the Chinese equivalent of a patent office that related to their um, digital currency project that were filed by the central bank. And when we piece those patents together, we were able to translate the abstracts, not the entire patent application, but the abstracts. It's a very well as you would expect, methodically thought out all the components of what the central bank mechanism would do, how that interfaces with the banks, with the wallet providers, and how you know transfers can take place. So you know they really have thought through quite well how this would function. I think there's still kind of work to do there. And I think the pandemic, of course, maybe slowed down their launch plans a little bit. But I think we've seen news even in the last month that they're moving ahead. So not to, to interrupt, but how, I mean, how would it function? And also, I guess three questions. How would it function? Why would they want to do this? What do they get out of it? And then in terms of its impact on blockchain, obviously, well, I assume that they don't want a distributed blockchain. That would be very counter to anything that happens in China. And so I assume that it's a centralized blockchain system, which is very different from what we, one of the advantages we normally think of for blockchain. Or I could be completely wrong. And so (laughs) tell me if I am. It's interesting. I guess I'll address that one first. And then if I can remember, come back to the first question. But I mean, I think they're related. Of course, in some respects, it has to be centralized in the sense that if you have a central bank issuing the currency, there is that kind of control in the programming of it and the understanding of, you know, even the ability to track where that coin, the token is is moving. I think that depending on the government that issues a token like that, that can be concerning if there's a certain censorship or other things at play. But if you think about it, it has to operate as a payment mechanism. So it can't be entirely centralized if you have to be able to use it through WeChat or Tencent or, you know, on other mark, you know, online marketplaces, for example. There is a decentralization aspect to it in the sense that you have to be able to use it. So that's an interesting dynamic there. I think to your second question about why, why would China be incentivized to do this? You know, the U.S. has the reserve currency. And because of that, we are able to influence so many things around the world. Take for one sanctions policy. You know, lots of international financial contracts are denominated in the U.S. dollar or even commodities or, you know, all those kinds of things. And so 
you have to be able to have access to the U.S. financial system, the U.S. banking system, in order to trade in dollars. If you no longer need dollars, you can go elsewhere, and that would diminish the U.S. sanctions capabilities. If you think about how we've used economic sanctions so effectively in the last, it used to be trade sanctions. Over time, it evolved into more economic sanctions. So the last maybe decade or two has been dominated by economic sanctions. And if we no longer control that, could have an impact on national security. So how does the digital currency help them get there? Is it that they hope to actually provide the infrastructure that would allow lots of currencies to be traded or you know, to be traded this way or that, you know, that they're providing leadership in kind of the next way that currencies are valued and moved rather than just having a digital currency itself? Because I, I don't quite see how a digital currency will necessarily help them get out from being subject to the dollar as a reserve currency by itself. For sure. I mean, I think it would, you know, you have to think about global adoption and it Mm -hmm. has to, you'd have to get traction there. And I think the idea, and again, this is, we're constantly learning more and more about it. I'm not an authority on the Chinese government. So just disclaimer Mm -hmm. there, but, you know, I think as part of its Belt and Road Initiative, if they were to use this as part of the infrastructure that they're building out globally, not just in the U.S., but actually outside of the U.S., you know, in other countries and other continents, it could catch on in that way and then become preferable if it's easier to work with, you know, if there's other incentives to using it. It just depends on how they they go about that. Right. I guess I realize I'm asking questions that can't really be answered. The report is, is itself is kind of amazing. Like you said, you got all that information from Pat. So yeah. it was quite remarkable. I know. Yeah. So, right. It's, so it's available on our website. It really was more of an information resource. I mean, we're not trying to say, point the finger at China as any particular mm-hmm bad guy or anything like that. I think it's more of, here's an example of a country that's incentivized, motivated, and has built something over time. You know, this takes time and they've put that time and money into it. They're not the only one, of course, but they're a big one and gets a lot of attention from this administration. So I thought it was important to note that and really is in an effort to say the U.S. needs a strategy. The U.S., you know, not saying that it has to choose one particular solution or another, but it needs to have a formal approach to addressing, will the U.S. have a digital dollar like this or will, you know, what will it decide to do? And oh, I know it's problematic to put everything, to try to put everything as a horse race. But if we were to put it as a horse race, how's the U.S. doing? Do we have any real plans to go forward? I know there's the committee in Congress and do they have much influence in putting us on a track towards this? You know, there's folks in Congress that are very interested in this. Sometimes, you know, they may come at it from a different reason, some from the national security side of things some from the economic stability, some from technology side. So I think there's a lot of interest there. We've had some very good conversations in different agencies within the administration who also see the value of this. Certainly the Fed has made some comments about this publicly, more along the lines of we're watching this and you know we're studying it, but not in the sense that they've announced any formal plan or approach. So I think The idea may be that we could be a fast follower. You know, I think there's some validity to, you know, do we have to be the first government to do this? No. And Mm -hmm. actually, we're not. Some governments have already done this. And I think also there's some, you know, we do need to keep in mind that this isn't easy to do. And you don't want to just kind of put it together to be the first one or to be fast in the horse race. You want to get it right and do it well, because a lot rides on how you transact in the dollar and your confidence in the U.S. financial system. And certainly we want to build confidence rather than take away from it. I think that's a good point to make. And maybe you can update us on current anti-money laundering efforts, AML compliance, tax compliance. One good thing about the U.S. is that 
you're very well lawyered. So, (laughs) you know, maybe overly regulated, but that does build confidence in the U.S. dollar as, you know, the reserve currency. So how are AML efforts going and are we building up the knowledge and infrastructure and regulations to go along with blockchain development? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with kind of a broader comment on what you just said, which is, I mean, I think the U.S. approach to this has been each agency has looked at this technology from its own governing statute, right? So they've got their own authorizing statute, what they can and can't do, and then look to apply that um, to this new technology. And so you've seen that out of FinCEN, you've seen that out of the SEC, the CFTC, the IRS. And in some cases, the authorizing statutes they have are somewhat flexible, principles-based, and they're able to apply that in a proactive way. And in some cases, they're maybe not as flexible. And that's where some of the challenges arise. So specifically on the anti-money laundering side of things, you know, I think FinCEN, who is the U.S. anti-money laundering administrator of our anti-money laundering efforts, they've been very proactive. And I think flexible even in the way that they've looked at this. I mean, certainly they're stern and preventing money laundering and terrorist finance. And that's a primary objective. But I think they also have been, when I say flexible, they've issued guidance that I think has been very helpful to industry. They were the first out of the gate in 2013 with their guidance that says the Bank Secrecy Act applies to exchanges, for example. And then they followed up with that with a series of advisory letters that kind of fine-tuned, okay, but in this situation, here's the principle. And they made sense. So what we've been looking at the anti-money laundering side of things now is at the multilateral level, we've been engaging with the Financial Action Task Force or the FATF, which is kind of where the global governments come together to think through recommendations and principles that they want to apply and then push that out to the other countries. The U.S. held the presidency for the FATF a year and a half ago and really was successful in pushing forward their views into the global stage so that they then can be pushed down and kind of harmonize globally the recommendations around AML, which I think is very helpful to the U.S. companies who maybe had a competitive disadvantage against maybe some of their competitors who were not dealing primarily in the U.S. But it it is a steep learning curve, as you all know. I mean, you got to keep at it. And I learn something new every day. So we've taken, you know, we've really been working hard to both educate as well as spearhead some uh, strategies to help the industry come into compliance globally. So we just, working with two other trade groups globally, put together a standard for information sharing around the world that people can utilize to help achieve compliance. And then also trying to help some of the software solutions that are coming online be known to industry so that folks can kind of grow those and adopt those. So we've taken a really proactive approach towards compliance in this space. I mean, you just can't argue around money laundering and terrorist finance. You've got to understand the risks there and get it right. So that's been our primary approach. It sounds like the international forums are very collaborative and seem to function well from what you're describing. But we don't actually hear that very often. Is that, do you think, is that accurate? I mean, mostly, I guess where I might make a distinction is that, you know, each country comes to the table with their own perspective. You know, so I think in the the circumstance that I was just describing, the U.S. had a, a clear agenda to bring the U.S. regulatory environment into a global picture. You know, I think there are countries that understood that, but also were sympathetic to the fact that setting something like that up is not easy and it's time consuming for industry. And, you know, there's a balance how, you know, innovation versus regulation and which way do the levers work and making sure that you help an industry grow, but you don't want any catastrophic circumstances coming up either. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a trend actually that I was going to thinking about sharing with you guys. One trend that I've seen in the last year is what you kind of mentioned, which is a lot of these multi lateral organizations 
looking at different developments, whether it's the FATF with AML, whether it's the BIS or the IOSCO or the FSB, all looking at kind of financial stability issues and banking and securities with the rise of a so-called global stablecoin or the prospect of a global stablecoin. So we've seen a lot of papers written by those organizations. And could, could, could you describe, could you define a stablecoin? I know for all the crypto groups, they're probably rolling their eyes um, asking this question, but a lot of other people don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, I am rolling my eyes too. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's fine. I mean, I'm glad you asked the question because I think policymakers in particular use that term and it can mean different things to different people. And it can also mean multiple things to the same person. So we've looked at stable coins as encompassing around three different aspects. They're typically linked to some underlying value. So they can be pegged to a fiat currency, like, you know, one to one to the US dollar. So one stable coin, whatever it's enumerated in, equals one US dollar or one euro. They can be pegged to something else like a commodity. So one to one to an ounce of gold or, you know, anything, you know, any type of commodity like that. They can be pegged to other virtual assets to enable some stability that way. And then I've seen them also more purely algorithmically backed. So they're just pegged to, you know, an algorithm that tries to ensure its stability. But they all kind of have that same trend, which is trying to solve the issue of volatility that we sometimes see in, for example, the Bitcoin markets to enable a more stable and a more dependable perspective and use of that as a currency. The interesting thing around stable coins, I mean, just to, I mean, it's gotten a lot of attention because of Facebook announcing the Calibra Association and the, and the Libra Association and the Calibra. And I mean, it's just, it is, I mean, just looking back kind of a retrospective, they made the announcement that they were building this a year ago. They still haven't launched anything. And we've had at least three congressional hearings on this, you know, requests from Congress to stop the project, statements by you know, global regulators, the um, Financial Stability Board, the Bank of International Settlements, major global organizations kind of, you know, I think it finally opened their eyes to like, wow, this technology really could have an impact. It really could have global reach. And how do our laws address that, the risks, the potential risks there? What are the potential risks and how are we, are we addressing them effectively? Um, so it's really an interesting for something that has not even launched. Is that the reason it hasn't launched? Because yeah, from well, this, a huge amount of interest from the various regulators around the world? Yeah, I mean, it has been delayed. I think they've said publicly, you know, they're, they won't launch until they've satisfied regulatory concerns. And I, I believe that they've I know that they issued an updated white paper maybe two weeks ago with some changes designed to address, in particular, anti-money laundering and FinCEN and U.S. regulatory concerns, as well as others globally. So we'll, we'll see. I, I mean, hopefully they'll get there. I think there's many, many worthwhile projects out there. That's, I think, a very interesting one. And you know, I hope that that gains some traction and makes it over the line. One thing that's interesting about innovation in this space is that you can't really test the regulations until you innovate and launch a product. So there is a back and forth. So like the Securities Exchange Commission, they've been giving guidance on their framework for what an investment contract is. And one reason why they provided that guidance is because companies were actually doing ICOs and testing the technology. And so the SEC probably wouldn't write a framework unless entrepreneurs were trying new technologies. 
And then you see that there are other projects coming out that aren't doing ICOs, but they're using tokens, but not doing token offerings. So there's still development happening with the regulators watching. Maybe could you update us on what's happening with the definition of tokens and the investment contract analysis? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned about a year ago, a division of the SEC came out with some guidance on investment contracts. And I think its intention was to help give a list of factors that industry could use. And I think it was helpful in showing that the SEC recognized that not all tokens are securities, that even if it was a security at some point, it could evolve into not being a security. And so I think those kinds of things were helpful. And I know that companies do use that now as a resource. I think where it's encountered some difficulty is that it, depending on how you count the factors, it introduces maybe 60 plus factors into how to determine if you're an investment contract or not. And it doesn't assign weight to any one over another. And really the way the factors are, in my mind, every token platform would trigger at least one and probably at least a handful. And even then, in my mind, I don't think I would consider them offering an investment contract. Some could, but some may not, you know, and it's hard to, how do you, if you're a lawyer, for example, how would you give kind of a clean advice on, well, yeah, we think you're probably not an investment contract, but, you know, you'd have to kind of caveat that advice because it's very hard to tell under those criteria. So I think it was a step in the right direction, but we certainly, I think that's still an area that needs greater clarity. One on what's the dividing line there that and for one, because I think there are token platforms that should not be viewed as securities and should be able to run as a a token that enables use for the platform. On the other side of that, we have members that offer tokens intended to be a security or offer infrastructure to enable trading in digital securities or tokenized securities. And there's, even when you want to be in that regulated environment, there's delays in getting the the appropriate authorizations to be appropriately authorized in that environment or How do you satisfy some of the existing obligations that exist for custodians, for example, of customers' assets? So there's still more to be done there. And I think circling back to where we started with the COVID pandemic and just the economic crisis that we're all in and and the health crisis, a lot of agencies and even, of course, Congress focus has been on relief in that environment. Number one, you know, helping to relieve certain situations. And then two, looking at where companies may have some challenges and meeting their compliance obligations while they're trying to push out quickly aid and things like that. So I think we're a little bit delayed in getting some clarity on these particular issues, at least for the short term. Is there a particular issue that you found especially difficult to resolve? I mean, I know there are a lot of them and you've described them, but you know, is there one that you end up in the day thinking, well, how are we going to get past this? Or you know, why doesn't so-and-so understand why this is such a big barrier? Yeah, so I'll distinguish my answer to this as there's lots of big issues that need addressing. We've kind of talked about a lot of them. So on the like the harder ones to deal with from a regulatory perspective, I definitely think the ones around the SEC are the hardest. And really just the ones that we just mentioned. How do you carve out certain tokens from the securities frameworks? And what I found, you know, we're a trade association. We've got all kinds of members coming from different perspectives, lawyers who are members securities lawyers who are members, trying to figure out how to appropriately define which tokens should be considered securities and which should not on a principles basis. So you're writing something that could 
potentially stand the test of time. Even people whose minds are all going in the same direction disagree on how to do that. And so getting to that, defining terms, is it an exception? Is it an exclusion? Is it a whole new separate regime? That's not easy to figure out. So that's, I think that's a big challenge. I think there's folks that have just different perspectives there. So there's so more work to do there. That's fascinating. Do you think if there was more consensus among industry players, there'd be faster progress here in DC? Is it kind of the rough and tumble of innovation? They're figuring out the models as well in California, so to speak, and then we're following? (laughs) Well, I think, I mean, the way I've described it is more the intellectual challenge. How do you intellectually as lawyers, as securities specialists, as an industry, figure that out. I think the other part of the challenge is that I think that there's the SEC internally is mixed in how to treat this. I think there are some that are not inclined to move forward at a faster pace and are being quite cautious. And so when you have that kind of mentality, it's there's more work to do. Certainly they've been very willing to talk with industry and hear what's going on. And their FinHub has been very dynamic and engaging. But I do think that there's even just differences within the agency on how to proceed here. And that's another, it's a political challenge rather than I think maybe the intellectual side of which T's to cross and I's to dot type of thing. Great. So I guess just as a final question, what are your top priorities for 2020? What would you recommend, you know, Hill staffers who are reading up on issues or Congress people who are setting priorities? What would you recommend as important things to get done in 2020? Yeah, there's really four things that I would say, and we've touched on almost all of them, except for one, which I'll mention now too. The first one, we almost hit on them in order, to be honest. The first one is the U.S. competitiveness, making sure that the U.S. remains at the forefront of technology and innovation. I think we're behind there. I don't think we're irreparably behind, but we're starting to get closer to real alarm bells going off because other countries are just understanding the opportunity and putting money and time and resources into innovation. The second one, is around uh, anti-money laundering. And you know you have to be confident in the proper functioning of the marketplace and helping and enabling industry to show that, but also kind of temper some of the, you know, we do hear some, you know, more opinionated views on it's, oh, this is only used by money launderers or, or terrorists. And that's not true either. So it's kind of tempering these overstatements at the same time, making sure we understand the risks and address those as best we can. The third is the token space. We're focusing on helping to enable the two things we talked about, enabling digital securities and that infrastructure to grow. So there's a lot in the trading and settlement space that can be much more efficient with blockchain technology. At the same time, carving out an appropriate space for token projects that are not securities to develop. And then the last one that we didn't mention yet, but is around tax. You know, tax drives how people interact and, you know, it drives people's actions and the way you're taxed influences that. And so the IRS has issued some guidance in this space, determining that convertible virtual currencies are treated as property under the U.S. tax code. But that leaves open a wide array of different types of treatments within the designation of property. And some of the unique aspects there, industry has reacted differently just to remain compliant and to show that they're acting reasonably, but there's still, it's been uneven and there's still questions there. One of the areas that we're looking at right now is around information reporting, what information reporting should look like. And that's being looked at both by the U.S. and globally. Again, Scott, back to your original point, I mean, the OECD is looking at how to look at the multilateral 
more harmonized view of how we should be taxing. Well, virtual assets is what they're calling it at that level. So we've been very active there, both with the OECD and with the IRS. And they're very engaged on that topic. There's a lot of topics, but I think information reporting is the one that's on deck right now. Great. Yeah, there's so many issues. And thank you. You're an expert in this space. And we're glad to hear more progress and hope that blockchain kind of continues to take off and mature in 2020. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. I appreciate all that you guys do. Really, really nice to talk with you this afternoon. You too. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Take care.